Oregon, and welcome to yet another week of Offbeat Oregon Stories. As ever, I am your host, Finn J.D. John, FJ at OffbeatOregon.com, and of course, it's Monday. That means instead of reading you one of the archive columns from the past 14 years of Offbeat Oregon history, I'm going to be reading you a primary source document, something interesting pulled from the pages of Oregon history. In this case, it is the autobiography of a, an Oregon pioneer which was turned over by, the, uh, by a member of his family to the writers at the Works Progress Administration's Federal Writers Project, working on the Oregon Folklore Studies Enterprise. Now, this is a long one, so I split it into three parts. Each part is about 15 minutes long-ish. We had part one last Monday. Part two is coming at you right now, or at least in a few minutes, and we'll be finishing up with part three next Monday. Here we go. A few days afterward, we went through a prairie dog town of at least two miles in length. I copy the following description by a naturalist in the Scientific American. The prairie dog of the Missouri region and westward and southwestward belonged to a genus of American rodents intermediate between marmot and prairie squirrels. The animal is about 13 inches long with a tail 4 inches 9. The color above is reddish or cinnamon brown with light to the hairs and a few black ones intermixed beneath brownish white. The cheek pouches are rudimentary, eyes large, ears quite short. They live in burrows in great numbers, accompanied by rattlesnakes and ground owls. The dog generally stands near their holes with their hind feet and emit a sound something like a small puppy barking. But when approached, they dart with wonderful agility into their holes, uttering a defiant bark. Our company succeeded in killing several buffaloes as it traveled through their range, but none was allowed to go to waste as it was jerked, i.e. dried on sticks over a fire and carried along, making excellent food. The night that we camped on Black Haw Creek, there was a company, known as the Blue Wagon Train, for the reason that their wagon covers were made of blue-colored material, camped about eight miles above us and ahead of us had a stampede with disastrous results. The company had corralled their stock, and the guards were preparing to take their stations when one of them commenced exploding caps on an Allen revolver preparatory to loading when one of the oxen standing near gave a jump and bellowed, and the whole herd became panic-stricken, making a general rush for the opposite side of the circle of wagons or corral, entirely going over the same, and it was said that some of the animals actually went over the wagons, crushing everything beneath them. All the stock, horses, cattle, and sheep alike became stampeded. One child was killed and several other persons more or less injured. Wagons broken considerably, while about a dozen sheep were killed outright and other larger animals crippled. The stampeded herd happened to take the road that led towards our camp, and the first indications that we had was some of them appearing among us and apparently as wild as any buffalo that lived upon the surrounding plains. Mr. Bradshaw immediately took in the situation and ordered out all the men to guard and quiet our stock, which began to grow uneasy, but we quelled the excitement. In due time, some men came from the other train in pursuit and gave an exciting account of their misfortune and asked assistance, which was readily granted. They succeeded in recovering quite a number before moving. The next day we passed their camp and saw the effect of the stampede. 
We learned afterwards that the company did not succeed in recovering all their stock. Most probably they had become mixed in with some herd of buffaloes. About a week after this, another train stampeded, as we were informed, as the train was about to start after a short halt at noon. Our informant stated that a boy was in the act of mounting a horse when the saddle turned, throwing the boy and causing the animal to run away. An attempted to pass between the wagon and the wheel yoke and frightened the team, which started on the run, bellowing as they went. This started the other teams, and in an incredible short time, the whole train was dashing over the plains in spite of all the efforts of the drivers who, of course, were left behind. The women and children jumped or were thrown out, and some of them severely injured. The frightened oxen did considerable damage to the wagons and delayed the train for several days. It is astonishing with what speed a team of four yoke of oxen can run. Some men assert they can run as fast as a team of eight horses could have done and carried as much destruction. The next object of interest that we saw on this long and tedious road is what was known as the Chimney Rock, which we had seen for two or three days before we reached it. This is a sharp-pointed rock somewhat resembling an enormous chimney, as it stands alone in the plains and can be seen for thirty or forty miles. The next place of interest is Scott's Bluff, a good history of which is given in Palmer's Guide. We arrived at Fort Laramie about June 15, 1847, and remained one day where we witnessed the first war dance. There were about 5,000 Sioux Indians who were forming an expedition against their hereditary enemy, the Pawnee Nation. The opening of July 3rd, we arrived at Independence Rock. This is a solitary granite rock rising out of the level plain about 80 feet high, about 600 yards long, and half as wide. The rock has hundreds of names upon it, some out on its hard surface, but mostly of paint or tar. As we camped there and celebrated the 4th of July, 1846, our company also added their names with dates and so on. We have read the names that have been placed there for years before ours. Editor's Note The discrepancy in dates is in the original document. 1847, 1846, I'm pretty sure it means 1847. Back to the script. The morning of the 6th we started on and passed through the Devil's Gate, a narrow gap in the mountains through which runs the sweet water. This gap is very narrow and the walls fully 500 feet high, with only room for the wagon between the rock and the water. A little boy had died and was buried only the day before in this narrow road for the purposes of concealment from the Indians as they had dug up all the fresh graves for the clothing. By adopting this mode, the passing teams obliterated all traces, and the dead were allowed to rest in peace. July 11th, we reached the summit of the Rocky Mountains and passed over it in a gentle ridge where the water flowed on one side to the Atlantic and the other to the Pacific, the point we so desired to reach. Thus, within a few hundred yards, the waters parted, each to seek its great reservoir on either side of the continent. We next came to the Bear River and traveled some two, three days along its general course. On July 24th, my father died. He had about recovered the attack of fever caused by getting wet in the Platte, but caught cold and suffered a relapse without any hope of recovery. There was no physician in our or any available train. We were compelled to travel, and having no spring wagon along, the roughness of the road and the heat of the weather greatly aggravated the disease and its progress was rapid. He died about midnight, was buried at sunrise in the morning, the grave being eight feet deep for a coffin. Some boards of boxes were arranged around as well as could be, and the grave filled up. 
A train of forty wagons passed over it, as did hundreds of others afterward who did not know who slept beneath, but his was not the only grave. There were hundreds of others the same, and when the depression was observed, they were refilled, and on they passed, not knowing but that the same would be their fate before the journey was ended. The next place of note that we found was the Soda Springs on Bear River. We remained at this place half a day. The springs were very numerous, but having been described so often, it is not necessary to repeat it here. There had nothing transpired of interest except that our teams were beginning to get poor and suffered a great deal from sore feet, and it was found necessary to lighten up our wagons, a process that was continued for the rest of the journey by the entire emigration, and many useless articles that had been hauled for a thousand miles were thrown out and left by the side of the road. As an instance, someone in advance of us had hauled along an entire weaving loom, timber and all, as if there was no timber in Oregon. A real suffering as an emigration commenced when we arrived in the Snake River country, barren, rocky, and with great scarcity of water. In due time, we arrived at Fort Hall, then owned by the Hudson's Bay Company, but built by Nathaniel J. Wyeth, an American. Captain Grant was in command and had lived at that lonesome and desolate place for several years before. We left here and traveled down Snake River and encountered great difficulty at times in obtaining water. The river runs in a tremendously deep canyon, and when in the country above it, it looked like a ribbon in its great depth below, and it was a very toilsome job to descend and descend, and when we descended to the first crossing, the rocks had worn-out wagon tires nearly asunder at the place of contact as they were locked. We were compelled to ferry the river in our wagon beds, there being no ferry, and the process was both slow and dangerous. In the three days we arrived at the last crossing of the river and forded it, but it was so deep that we were compelled to stretch chains across the standards and place the wagon beds upon the chains. This weighted the wagons down while it allowed the water to run with less obstruction. We also doubled teams and men on each side of each team mounted on horses which drove them on the tortuous ford. There was an island which could be reached without great danger, but the other channel was where the difficulty was experienced." but the coolness and dexterity of our drivers succeeded in making the passage without serious accident, except the last wagon, loaded with goods which ran on a boulder and overturned, but being near the bank was rescued and the boxes quickly opened and the goods dried without great damage. From here, until we reached the Blue Mountains, we were in the Hot Springs country, and they were met every day in the water being at boiling temperature and many of them emulating like a kettle, Often a cat or dog that was suffering with thirst would lie in its haste, stick its nose into the spring, withdrawing it instantly with a howl of pain and the skin being entirely removed. This also was a serious matter with us as well as to the animals that required care in doctoring them, as often they were much needed. When we arrived at Powder River, the general topography of the country changed. Valley streams and mountains were covered with timber. The grass was also better— but the exhausted stock did not seem to reciprocate. They all died along the road and had been for over two hundred miles in our rear. In crossing the deserts, they had laid down and died with wonderful frequency. The air was so dry that there was not as much smell emitted as is generally supposed. When we arrived at the foot of the Blue Mountains, it was found necessary to remain a day or two to allow our stock to rest but we were compelled to guard our sheep as the wolves would lead a dead ox or horse or a live sheep even in the daytime. 
We had no difficulty in crossing the Blue Mountains in the first night we camped in them, but the wolves howled so that we could not hear ourselves talk, but a few well-directed shots settled that wild serenade. While camped at this place, my grandfather determined to burn a small tar kiln, as we were out of that necessary article. Nearby was a beautiful grove of young fir. The conversation somehow turned upon the subject of a railroad being built across the plains. One of the men, who had a very crude ideas of the modern mode of transportation, had never seen one, in fact, none of the company had, remarked, "'Well, when they build it, I'll come here and make a hundred thousand rails for it out of this grove. Jiminy, won't they split nice, though?' Some of the company laughed, but he was in earnest, though. At the foot of Blue Mountains, after we had crossed, we begun to hear vague rumors of trouble with the Cayuse Indians— that they had robbed some trains and so on, which was confirmed the next day by a letter written by a victim who gave it to an Indian to show to all immigrants and to be compensated by each train, giving the said Indian a shirt or two for his trouble, or rather higher. A vigorous military discipline was now enforced, and on the part of the men readily assented to. The first night we camped upon the Umatilla River, a young Cayuse chief came to our camp and took a great fancy to one of my aunts, a handsome young lady of eighteen years of age, said he wanted to buy her. Her mother, who supposed it was only a joke, said he might have her in the morning for a hundred and fifty horses, and he said he would give it. The next morning, he and about a dozen other Indians drove at least two hundred and fifty head of Cayuse ponies up near the camp and came in to claim her. He was told that white people did not sell their women. It was only a joke. At this, his companions commenced to laugh at him, and he became very angry and insisted upon taking her away, saying he would give the whole band. The joke now began to assume a very serious aspect, but most of the men now arrived at this very opportune moment, among them Bradshaw, who instantly knew there was something wrong and made hasty inquiries. It was soon explained, and he decided the issue with his characteristic promptness by ordering the Indians to Pukachu, a universal word on the plains to leave. This they refused to do when Bradshaw, who was a good boxer, told the men to stand by, knocked the young chief down, wheeling and knocked another Indian down with his left hand, and pitched into the rest of them permiscuously. The young chief attempted to draw a knife, but Bradshaw sent him to grass, as he termed it. The Indians, who never could stand a fist fight, ignominiously fled and mounted their ponies and rode away, giving some expression to some terrible language. Bradshaw immediately ordered the teams hitched up, the stock all to be driven close to the train, the women to drive the teams, while the men all mounted and armed acted as a guard in advance, on each side and rear, while he himself went on ahead or kept in the rear as the character of the country changed favorable to an Indian attack. After we had traveled about two hours, we noticed all at once about fifty Indians on the top of the hill within a few hundred yards of the road, and evidently surprised at the preparations made for their reception, as if there is no doubt that but that they intended to charge us and take the loose stock, if nothing more. The train halted, and the men formed up between the enemy and the wagons, and for a few minutes awaited the attacks, but they gave some insulting signs and rode away and we did not see any more Indians until we camped on the banks of the Columbia River some eight days afterward. Across the river at this place was a large Indian village, and as soon as we camped, Indians came over being well-armed, bringing food and commenced to build a fire in the center of our camp, stating that they had come to camp and trade with us. 
My grandfather immediately seized a gun and ordered all the men to arm, which was promptly seconded by Bradshaw, who immediately placed himself at the head of the men, forming them in a line between the Indians and the families, and immediately advanced the Indians, who quickly divined the intentions and commenced stringing their bows and bringing their guns to bear upon us. For a moment or so, there was imminent danger of bloodshed, when the ominous silence was broken by Bradshaw's clear, ringing voice, who said, Pukachu! clear out, and ordered the line forward himself in advance. The Indians remained in sullen silence until the men came within a few feet of them, then slowly began to withdraw as they were pressed to the river bank and got into their canoes and started across the river Columbia, when about two hundred yards distant an Indian arose in his canoe and shot an arrow at the men, which fell near Bradshaw's feet, and it was quite an effort on his part to keep the men from firing a volley at them. The guard was doubled that night, but we were not molested. The next morning we left a wagon and then went out a camp about a quarter of a mile. The Indians ran it into the river as they had previously crossed as we had started on the day's journey. Bradshaw said we made a very narrow escape as the Indians outnumbered us five to one and they would rob if not murder the next train that camped there. We afterwards heard that on the next night a much larger train was robbed but none were killed. The next day we left the camp last spoken of, three Indians rode up to a man by the name of Fox and took off his hat, and when he tried to recover it, drew their arrows upon him and rode away as he was some little distance behind the train. The same afternoon, a man by the name of J.H. Ballinger lagged behind with his team against the positive orders, and when about a quarter of a mile from us, the Indians suddenly surrounded his wagon and commenced to help themselves out of his wagon. Footnote, this Bollinger, as our ancestors called them, but later they were called Bellinger, was the grandfather of C.B. Bellinger, who became U.S. District Judge for Oregon under Cleveland's first administration. Judge C.B. Bellinger was a regent of the University of Oregon for years. End of footnote. The old man possessed a saber that he had obtained in the War of 1812, which he began cutting the sagebrush with at a furious rate, at the same time talking rapidly in broken English, he being German, what he would do. The Indians laughed heartily at his antics, while Mrs. Bellinger added to the scene by lustily applying the whip to all who came within reach of her muscular arm. Bradshaw, who had been greatly annoyed at the perverse actions of Bollinger, had rode back to ascertain whether he had caught up with the train. He saw at first glance what was being transacted, and calling some of the men started at the top of his horse's speed to relieve him. He suddenly dashed among the Indians, using an Indian whip, as Bollinger afterwards said, miscellaneously on them, knocking them left and right without regard to age or condition. Before the Indians could recover from their surprise, the guard numbering some twenty men arrived, and the marauding band fled precipitately, and went away some distance, fired upon the men, which was returned by two or three, and an Indian was shot in the leg. The boys soon reloaded the wagon and hurried the team up to the train, while the excited old gentleman kept up a perfect stream of talk and demonstrating his ability in decapitating heads by slashing sagebrush as he walked along. Mrs. B., kneeling in the wagon, was reciferously engaged in prayer in the old camp-meeting style, as Bradshaw said in a dozen different languages, that the Almighty would need an interpreter. The boys always declared that Bollinger had cut down a quarter of an acre of brush, and many a joke the remainder of the journey, employing him to clear land for them when they arrived in the valley. This, this was the last Indian trouble we had, but after that, Bollinger always kept up with the train. Well, that seems like a good place to stop. In the next installment, we will continue with the uh, 
wagon trains experience at Barlow Road. So they're almost to Oregon. That concludes part two of this three-part reading of the autobiography of J. Henry Wilson of Salem, Oregon. We will continue with part three of this excerpt next Monday. As I mentioned, there is more in the file, which you can find and read online if you wish to in PDF form at the Library of Congress. LOC.gov slash item slash WPALH 002000.